Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to look at a text of Scripture that is uh, disconcerting, if we're honest with ourselves, when we read it. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to find our text. Um, Worship in fear and celebration. 1981, one of the most iconic film franchises began, the Steven Spielberg film with Harrison Ford playing the character Indiana Jones, and the film was entitled Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it followed the story of an archaeologist trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. They went to Egypt, and the the final scenes of the movie kind of have uh, the Nazis, some Nazis around the Ark of the Covenant when they open it. And there, there's this kind of imagery of, of the Spirit of God in ghost-like form going through all of the enemies and destroying them, killing them. And of course we know that that film is fictional and the, many of the theological references and the, the ideas there are fictionalized. But where would they come up with such an idea for a film like that? Well probably from a text very similar to 2 Samuel chapter 6. There is imagery in this text that is quite frightening. When we're honest with ourselves as we read what we're going to see, it should challenge us. And then there's some celebration that's going to shake us a little bit in the way in which the worship of God is applied. I'm going to look at this text a little differently or preach it a little differently than maybe I would do other sermons. We're going to walk through it and, and we're going to look at eight different worship experiences that are found in this text of Scripture. Some are uh, self-oriented, meaning they're things we should avoid. Some are God-oriented, meaning things we should lean into and try to apply. And we're going to see a kaleidoscope of these experiences in this wonderful story from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Begin reading, if you will, with me, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them, that's a big crowd of people, together. And he gathered them, verse 2, David arose and went with the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring up the ark from there, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God in Ohio, went before the ark. First worship experience that we see here in the text is the experience of blessing. David sought the blessing of the Lord. Later on in the text, he's going to, David himself is going to bless the Lord verbally and bless the people by sending them away with gifts. David wrote many times in the Psalms, Bless the Lord, O my soul. It is appropriate when we gather as a congregation of people to bless the Lord. What is blessing the Lord? It's simply stating by verbal affirmation or in song truths that are are right about God. Praising Him for who He is. Acknowledging that He is great. Singing about Him that He is holy. Talking about how we can hold on to an eternal unchanging hand. Those are statements in our songs of blessing the Lord in affirmation. It's very appropriate that we should do that. In fact, a good portion of our gathered worship should be about us blessing God. But it's also very appropriate for us to seek God's blessings of us. And I don't mean financial blessings or, or blessings in terms of 
uh, kind of physical experiences, health. We can ask God for all those things. But what, what David sought was God's affirmation on his kingship. That's why he sought the ark of God. See, the ark was something that God designed. He told Moses about it in the book of Exodus. He said, I want you to make an ark according to these dimensions. So God designed it, gave it to Moses. Moses gave the, the dictation of that, the explanation of that, to uh, craftsmen named Bezalel and Holiab, and they were responsible for making the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was to reside in the Holy of Holies. It represented the presence of God with His people. Only once a year, the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies with the atonement sacrifice for the people of God, and he was to sprinkle that atoning sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. So that ark was representative of God's atoning work of forgiveness among His people, and it was representative of His presence. And it had been residing not in Jerusalem, it had been residing in the house of Aminadab. Prior to that, it had actually been stolen by the Philistines and brought back to the people of Israel because the ark did damage to the Philistines. So what David sought when he sought the blessing of God's presence through the ark is he was seeking God's affirmation upon his kingship. He wanted the ark to be in Jerusalem where he was residing so that God's presence would be there among his people and among his leadership. Folks, it is very appropriate for us to seek for God's blessings. It's appropriate for when we gather as a congregation for us to ask God to continue to pour out His blessings of people coming to faith in Him and His blessings of worship experiences in our Christian life and in our church service. This is a God-oriented worship experience. If we go to church regularly and we don't experience the blessings of God, there's something wrong with us. Or there's something wrong with our congregation and we need God to intervene. It's appropriate for us to seek God's blessings. There are other worship experiences, though, in the text. The next one is not a good one. Verse 5, if you will. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And we're reading that through a 21st century lens, 3,000 years removed from the events. Just think about that for a second. Uzzah was trying to protect the ark from falling. The ark represented the very presence of God among his people. The oxen stumbled, the ark, the cart stumbled. Uzzah put out his hand to protect the ark. And when he touched the ark, God struck him dead in that moment. What was Uzzah's worship experience? It was irreverence. Utter irreverence. He touched something that God said is not to be touched by common and ordinary hands. And God struck him dead. Say, hold on a second. I don't, I, don't like, I don't like thinking about a God that could or would do that. But that's not the only time God does things like this. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, Aaron's two sons sacrificed Foreign fire before the Lord, and God struck them down. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about the amount of money that they gave to the church. God struck them down dead. Folks, I want to tell you something. It is possible for people to worship God in a way that is irreverent and for God to strike down those who are irreverent. And, and thankfully, when we've been irreverent before God, He's not struck us dead. 
Can I get an amen? But he won't accept that kind of worship. Irreverence is a self-oriented worship experience. And where did it stem from? What was the problem here? Well, the problem was disobedience at its heart. You see, what they had done is they decided to move the ark from one place to the other, and they put it on a cart. That's not how God said to move the ark. If you go back to the book of Exodus, God said to move the ark by having priests carry the ark by holding poles. What they had done is they had pictured, they had moved the ark the way the Philistines moved the ark. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel took the ark out in a battle against the Philistines and lost the battle. The Philistines took the ark, they brought it into their, different, into their kingdoms. It went to different towns, and every time it went to a different town, the people of the town developed tumors, the women couldn't have children, they experienced judgment, so they moved it to another town. They kept moving it around until they realized the ark of God is serving as an act of judgment upon the Philistines. So that what did they do? They put the ark on a cart, led by oxen, and they sent it back to Israel. That's what they did. That's the way they moved the ark. The Philistines moved the ark on the cart. God said, carry the ark. So the reason that Uzzah died is because the people of Israel, the leadership there, disobeyed God. Irreverence comes from disobedience. The best way for us to make sure we do not worship God irreverently is to make sure we worship God according to His Scripture, according to what He teaches. That's why in our worship services we begin with Scripture and we preach from Scripture, and we sing from Scripture. That's why we close our worship services with Scripture. It's why in your personal devotion, Scripture should be the undergirding and guiding influence of our lives. If we want to make sure we're not irreverent, we need to make sure we're undergirded by, the script, by Scripture, by God's Word. It's our protection. It's our framework. It's what guides us. It's what keeps us from being irreverent. This is something that we ought to avoid. We ought to make sure that we're reverent in the way that we worship God. There's another worship experience here. If you'll look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Paris Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Worship experience is fear. This is a God-oriented worship experience, something we ought to seek out. And I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the same David that wrote Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is the same David that, that stood over the sheep and defeated lions and bears. The same David who stood in front of Goliath and struck him down with, a, with just a stone from a sling. The same David who ran from Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. Same David who experienced God's protection over and over again. The same David who was in an intimate relationship with the living God. He, this day, saw God in a different light. He feared the Lord. He feared the Lord because the Lord is holy, and the Lord is great, and the Lord is glorious. Folks, we ought not think of God like, like a heavenly old man who we can walk up to and give a fist bump to. God is someone to be feared. He is great and greatly to be praised, David testifies in Psalm 145. There is no other God like our God. He is to be, He is glorious, He is righteous, He is holy, and we must approach Him with fear and with reverence. Too often today, the ideologies that we get around gods and deities are, are kind of marked by, by cultural ideas or false religious ideas. The gods of the Old Testament, the, the ancient pantheon of gods, the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, they're not gods. 
If you, if you paid any attention to the Marvel comic movies, there are deities that are referenced all the time. In the newest movie, Thor, Love and Thunder, there's this scene where there are all of these deities present in this gathering of gods. But they're not really gods. Not like our God. They're just more powerful human-like beings. They're immoral, they're sinful, they're wicked, and they can die. That's not our God. Our God is not like that. Our God is unique. Our God alone is to be feared. Our God alone is holy and sufficient and righteous. And I want to tell you something, folks. If we want to worship God appropriately, then fear needs to be a pretty significant worship experience in our lives. Will we recognize that God, if He chose to, God could strike us down for our sinfulness and irreverence and He would be justified because we are sinful and irreverent people. David feared the Lord that day. It's why your, your, your moms and dads and granddads, why I went to church and I was told to be quiet and be in fear. Have reverence in church. Why? Because God is a God to be feared. This isn't a kind of fear where we, where we cower thinking he's going to strike us down, but it's a kind of fear where we recognize he could. I mean, David watched God break out in judgment. He feared the Lord that day, and it changed his perspective on worship. It's something we ought to seek out, folks. We ought to make sure that we fear the Lord appropriately because he is a holy and a great God. Another worship experience is found in the next set of verses. So David, verse 10, was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The, the worship experience is availability. Availability, if you're taking notes. Obed-Edom was available. Now think about that for just a second. The, the procession going from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem stopped around the house of Obed-Edom. Maybe he was watching the procession take place. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he just heard about it. But there are 30,000 Israelites at least there in the procession. And he knew that the ark had slipped off the cart. Uzzah touched it and Uzzah died. Okay? And David knocked on Obed-Edom's door and said, Hey, Obed-Edom, can we leave the Ark of the Covenant here in your house? Can we leave it with you? And you got to imagine what had been going through his... I mean, do I want the Ark of God in my house? If the immediate preceding event was God struck someone dead because they touched the Ark? Talk about some faith. Talk about some willingness to let God do something in his life. The Bible says that he opened his house, opened his home, his, his, his property, and the ark remained there three months, and he experienced the blessing of God. One worship experience is simply the worship experience of availability. Some sportscasters talk about athletes using this kind of terminology. The best ability is availability. It doesn't matter how much you get paid or how talented you are if you're on the bench because you're injured. You're not helping out your team in any capacity. Right? And, and so part of what that means for us as Christians is if we're going to worship God, we need to be available to worship God. I know too many Christians that church is like a sort of thing for them. 
They're sort of there. They kind of dip their toe in and they pull their toe back out. They show up once a month or once every six weeks to make themselves feel a little less guilty than the last time they were away from church for four or six weeks. And they're sort of there and they're sort of not there. Let me tell you something. God is inviting us to be available, to be present, to be here. Hebrews 10 says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because this is the place where God's people meet to worship Him. And... and Too often the problem that we have is we're not available to let the Lord work in our lives because we're not here. We're not going to experience God's blessings because we're not among His people. And then there's three or four or six times a year we do finally show up to church and we want God's blessings and we don't experience anything. It kind of says, okay, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, maybe because we're not available. Maybe because our heart is not where it needs to be in order for God to work in and through our lives. One worship experience is quite simply being here among God's people, in His presence, seeking His blessings, and being available on a regular basis. Let me say something else about that. Church should inconvenience us. Some people say, well, I can't make it that often because I've got all these other things to do. Let me tell you something. If the God of the universe, the only God who is, can't inconvenience our schedule so that we worship Him? Is He really that important to us? Just throwing that out there. If He is who He says He is, my schedule ought to revolve around His expectation of me, not what time I think I can give Him when I feel so inclined. The worship experience of availability. There's another, there's several more worship experiences in the text. If you will pick up there in uh, verse 12. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. The... Uh, the, the fifth worship experience is obedience. We're going to talk about celebration and sacrifice and some other aspects of that. But did you catch that phrase? When those who bore the ark had gone six steps. What did David do differently? Well, he went back and read the Bible. He went back and read the book of Exodus where the ark was to be transported by priests carrying it on their shoulder on poles. And so guess what he did? When he moved the ark from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, he put it on poles and had priests carry it. That's what he did. He obeyed. You know what God expects of us more than anything else? More than sacrifice, more than song, more than celebration, more than fear, God expects obedience. David had learned that from Samuel. Samuel probably taught him that from Saul's example. Saul, back in the Old Testament, was given a command from God to go destroy the Amalekites. Destroy all that they had because they had stood against God's people moving into the promised land. And they had fought against God's plans and purposes. And and God told Saul, destroy the Amalekites. When Samuel showed up, Saul said, hey listen, we've got some sacrifices to offer. We saved some animals so that we can worship God. And here was Samuel's response. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God invites us 
to do something and he invites us to obey him because he is the great and glorious God. And the best way for us to experience worship faithfully and fully is to simply obey God. Do what he says. When he says forgive, or to forgive. When he says to sing, we're to sing. We are. The Bible tells us to clap our hands. I think about five of, of us were clapping our hands now. Some of us can't clap on beat. That's me. I can't clap on beat. I was clapping though. I was doing my best. But he tells us to sing. So I'm just going to shoot straight with you. If he tells us to sing and you don't sing, you're kind of not obeying the Lord. Not kind of not. You're not obeying the Lord. If he tells us to be generous, tells us to love him, love other people. The point is that if we're going to have worship experiences where we sense God's presence... We've got to do what God says in order to sense His presence in our lives. We have to obey. If we consistently live our lives in disobedience and disconnect from what God has said, we're not going to experience Him in worship or in any other area of our lives because His expectation is obedience. What changed from the first time David brought the ark to the second time? The most significant change was obedience. Prior to that, they celebrated. They had all kinds of instrumentation. After that, they had celebration and all kinds of instrumentation. Prior to that, they sacrificed. They sacrificed this time too. What's the difference? The difference is David obeyed. The difference is the people of God carried the ark of God the way it was supposed to be carried. What God asks of us is that we worship Him in obedience. The next worship experience is celebration. Man, they celebrated. I don't know how far it is from... um, from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, but every six steps they sacrificed an animal. That's what it says. They sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf, verse 13. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And some of you are more uncomfortable with that verse than you are with God striking us a dead. I mean, let's be honest. Nobody is going to accuse Wilkesboro Baptist Church of being Baptocostal. We are just not there. But David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Notice what else it says. He, he was wearing a linen ephod. We'll come back to that at the end. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. It wasn't just David. All the house of Israel was celebrating and singing and sacrificing and praising. And the ark of the Lord came in the city and Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. There was celebration taking place. They would go on to, to where they gathered and they put the ark where it was supposed to be and David sent the people off with, with sacrifices. He sent them with a piece of meat and he sent probably from the sacrifices and with some bread and a cake of raisins to send them home to celebrate. I mean, the celebration was just glorious. They had something to celebrate. God's presence was among His people in in the ark. God's presence was there. And they were rejoicing and dancing and singing and celebrating and sacrificing and praising God. Folks, that's the the worship experience that we all ought to pursue. Celebration. It's a God-oriented worship experience. It's right for us to be reverent. It's right for us to be solemn and pensive at times when we think about the holiness and the righteousness and the majesty of God. But it is also entirely appropriate for us as God's people to celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Christ. 
to celebrate the God who would reach down into our sinfulness and offer us a relationship with himself. So let me put it this way. It would not be wrong for you to move a little bit when you sing. Okay, I grew up in a, in a context where I was kind of told you don't dance. It's not something you do. Some of you grew up in, a, in situations where you were told absolutely under no uncertain terms, do you dance? Most of the time they're talking about dancing with the opposite sex, right? And, and there are all kinds of inappropriate forms of dance that way. But, but that's not the type of dancing David was doing. This isn't like some kind of, uh, you know, dancing with him and his wife. This is celebratory dance with him honoring and glorifying God. I say, you, you know, if, pastor, if you start breaking out and dance, my kids are going to be so embarrassed if I do that. They're going to just can't, they're not going to stand, they're going to close their eyes, they're going to pretend they're not mine. I don't have rhythm, but David danced in celebration. Say, man, what, what if we started moving in celebration? We do that on platform. Michael does that. Sarah does that. Anita's not still at the piano. She's, she's what, what is that? It's moving as a result of us praising and glorifying God. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't go too far and like break a hip or something. But it, it wouldn't be a bad thing for us to move a little bit. Now, some of you are going to be really uncomfortable with that. Oh, it's okay. There's, there's a reason Paul said to do things decently and in order. Okay? We're probably not the congregation that you could drop into Africa and, and go to their churches. And they do dance. I mean, they, they dance and chant and do all of that kind of stuff. And it is joyous and celebratory. That happened here. Some of you would be like, i got to find another place. This, this, this isn't for me. And, and I understand that make some of you a little comfortable. So let's compromise. At the very least, smile. Okay? If you're going to celebrate what God has done, let your face show that God has forgiven you. If you move a little bit when you sing and when you praise, that's fantastic. But we're to celebrate as God's people. And not just here. See, see they came together and celebrated all the way to Jerusalem. But then David sent them home with a meal to celebrate at home. In other words, to take the blessings of what happened in the church service, it wasn't the church, but it was the people of God, to take the blessings there and bring it back to the home. You know, that's what we ought to do. It's one of the reasons we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because a meal signifies an event of celebration, an event of praise. God invites us to celebrate. It's a God-oriented worship experience when we celebrate who He is. There are two more worship experiences I want to draw out from the text. The next one is resentment. If you will, pick up in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David that he had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house, to bless his house, to, to share the meal, to share the blessings that God had given the people of Israel with everybody in their homes. Verse 20, David did the same. He returned to bless his household. 
But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. His female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. A little bit about Michael. Michael was David's first wife. He had several, but we're not talking about polygamy today. We'll talk about that in another sermon. But Michael was his first wife. He had defeated the Philistines, and Saul gave Michael to David in marriage. When David ran from Saul, Saul tried to take his life, Saul took Michael back and gave her to somebody else. So when David finally came and became king in Jerusalem, he brought Michael back into his house. He he took her back as his first wife. Uh, And this text says on three occasions, it identifies Michael not as the wife of David, but as the daughter of Saul. And that's reflective of something that was going on in her heart. See, she looked out and she saw David dancing. She accused him of uncovering himself in his vibrant, vigorous dance. Just, just throwing this out there, just kind of make, a, make a, a connection. If all we're doing is moving a little bit, that's not the type of dancing David was doing. Okay, he was full body dancing, vibrantly, gloriously dancing. And so she accused him of uncovering himself. Now, we're going to get more detail on this in a minute, but David was wearing priestly garments, linen ephod, and if he was wearing anything similar to what the Aaron, Aaron Aaronic priesthood was told to wear, he would have had undergarments on. He would not have uncovered himself. So I don't think at all that Michael's uh, accusation sticks. What was going on? She looked out and she saw the king acting in a way that she perceived was undignified. Because hadn't she, however, grown up in the king's household? under King Saul, and King Saul would have never danced before the Lord in an undignified way. In other words, her resentment was of David's outward worship that she could not understand. Why could she not understand? Because she showed herself to be a daughter of Saul, unconverted, rather than a wife of David who reflects the line that God chose. So she resented David, for his worship. And God judged her for it. She didn't have any children because of the resentment that was in her heart. Listen, I've been around Christians my whole life, and unfortunately, some of the meanest, most unforgiving folks that I've ever been around have been people who claim to be followers of Christ. They have resentment and a lack of forgiveness that they're harboring in their heart against a spouse, against a parent, against a child, against a neighbor, against a co-worker. They hold on to it. They harbor it in their heart. And it's no wonder some of them come to church on Sundays and you couldn't tell that they... I mean, you could hand them a million bucks and they wouldn't smile. I mean, there's just something wrong with their heart. They're holding on to sin. They're holding on to resentment. They're not letting go of something that's uh, that's a problem. Sometimes that happens when we as Christians don't get the way we don't get things the way we want. Don't like that person, or don't like that 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 style of music, or don't like this aspect of our worship service. And we get it in our hearts that it's all about us. And so we we look out and we act like Michael, and we're like, they're getting mad about that, resenting. 
Folks, that, that's a worship experience that's self-oriented. Doesn't please the Lord. It's not what God expects and what God desires. And if we act in resentment and hold on to it and don't bring it before the Lord, then we can anticipate that God's going to chastise us for it. That He's going to deal with our hearts. He dealt with Michael for her resentment. That's not who we ought to be. We ought to be people that no matter what happens around us, we see that God is greater than the experiences that we have. He's glorious and He's worthy of it. Even if what we see and experience makes us a little uncomfortable or troubles us a little bit. If God's not glorious and big enough to trouble us, then He's not glorious and big enough. Or we think way too much of ourselves. Let me give you the final worship experience in the text. It's the experience of service. I mentioned that David was wearing an ephod. The text tells us he was wearing a linen ephod. And then by uh, leadership, he led in the worship service. He was leading in the procession. He oversaw as they gave sacrifices. He danced. He probably was singing as well, doing all sorts of things. We know he was a singer, he was a musician, because he wrote so many of the psalms. He was functioning and dressed as a priest. Which, if you know your Old Testament, it's a little bit problematic. It's one of the things that got Saul in so much trouble. Because Saul tried to offer a sacrifice in lieu of the priests offering a sacrifice. Physically, tried to be the one offering a sacrifice. So how is it that David can function in the role of a priest? Well, it's a beautiful connection. It's actually because of the city that David had taken over. The city of Jerusalem. We know it as the city of David. But it's actually mentioned a lot earlier in the Bible. It's mentioned all the way back in the very first section of Scripture that we looked at when we began our worship series. It goes all the way back to Abram. You remember when Abram defeated the armies of the kings and he tithed to a man by the name of Melchizedek who was the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. It's the king of Salem who is known as the priest of the Most High God. That's his title in, as he was king of Salem. And so essentially what happened in the ancient world when a king would take over a city, a town or a kingdom, he would take on the title of whoever had resided there before him. So when David took over Jerusalem, he took over the city that Melchizedek was king over, and he took over Melchizedek's title, priest of the Most High God, which is why David dressed himself, I believe, in an ephod and served in a priestly function. Now, he didn't try to usurp the role of Aaron's priestly line. He didn't try to physically offer a sacrifice. But the reason he was functioning as a priest is because he was functioning as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is really not uncommon. In fact, David himself acknowledged this to a degree in Psalm 110. He said, The Lord said to my Lord, that is God the Lord, said to my Lord, who he's referencing in the text would be the Messiah, Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you look in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews draws on this very odd imagery in this line when he says about Jesus that he is a priest, quoting Psalm 110, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a beautiful affirmation of several things. One is that David is serving God's purposes by functioning like a priest. Beautiful picture. It says to us, by the way, we are as Christians today, followers of Jesus, 
We believe in the priesthood of every believer. Meaning that you and I don't need to go through anybody else to get to God. We get to God through Christ. Here's what that means. All of us, as a God-oriented worship experience, can serve God. We can, uh, we can observe and worship and praise. And God receives that because of what He's done through Christ. And that's the most important imagery that is brought up by this text. David serving as a priest under the order of Melchizedek foreshadows the coming priest who would be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, David was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, meaning he couldn't function as a priest. Jesus came from the line of David. We talk about that every Christmas, nearly. That Jesus came from the line of David, the line of kings. The line of kings couldn't function as priests. But if David served in a priestly function after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus came to serve the ultimate priestly function after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus came to offer us a way to God. And what David foreshadows in his priestly function here, in his service to the people of Israel, in this event, he foreshadows the Christ who would come making a way possible for us to be in relationship with with God Himself. Because the truth of the matter is, if we take our lives, and our hearts, and our behaviors, and we line them up against these worship experiences, we're probably a lot more disobedient than we are obedient. We might be more resentful than we're not resentful. We might be more curmudgeon than we are celebratory. We might functionally be more sinful in the way that we behave than we are obedient and righteous in the way we behave. And what did God do? God sent us a great high priest to not only stand between us and God, but to become the sacrifice that we would need in order to be in relationship with God. If you read this text and you're staggered by the holy wrath of a righteous God, that he would strike down Uzzah who would touch the ark, then we should be far more staggered that God would take his holy, perfect, righteous son and strike him on a cross with our sins, with our unrighteousness, with our disobedience, with our resentments, with our irreverence, with our unrighteousness. And Jesus on Calvary's cross hung there with your sins and hung there with my sins so that we could be forgiven. God's wrath was poured out on Christ so that we could experience forgiveness and relationship. And folks, what does that do? It leads us to worship and fear. A God who hates sin so much that He would punish His own Son for us. That's a God to be feared. But a God who loved us so much that He would punish His own Son so that we could enter into relationship with Him, that's a God to be celebrated. That's a God to rejoice in. That's a God to bless Him for. The invitation is twofold this morning. It's first to those of us that are followers of Jesus. If you're here and you have a relationship with Christ, you've trusted Him to be your Savior, you're in right fellowship with Him, I'm going to ask you to partake of the Lord's Supper.
That's what David did. They celebrated, they sacrificed, and they ate a meal together. A meal together acknowledging who God is and God's greatness and God's glory and God's majesty. They did so in fearful worship because God is a God to be feared. But they also did so in celebratory worship because the God to be feared made a way possible for us to be forgiven and be in relationship with Him. So we're going to partake in fear as we eat the bread and we're going to partake in celebration as we drink the juice. The invitation I said is twofold. Many of you are in the room and you will not partake of the Lord's Supper. Or some are in the room and will not partake of the Lord's Supper because you've not yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior. If you're a child and you haven't trusted Jesus to be your Savior, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're an adult and you have not trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, this meal is not for you. It's a family meal. It's for those who have experienced forgiveness and relationship with Christ. And you know you need that. I'm telling you, God sent Jesus to be your Savior and your Redeemer. And I would love nothing more than to tell you how you can enter into a relationship with the living God. How you can have your sins washed away and cleansed and be forgiven and move into forgiveness. Because the reality is, if you stand before God, continue to stand before God irreverently, in disobedience, maybe with resentment in your heart, then God will judge your sinfulness. And if you don't have Christ... The judgment will be eternal separation from a holy God. I would beg you, if you're here and you don't partake of the Lord's table because you're not a follower of Christ, would you talk to somebody about becoming a follower of Jesus? Child, children, if you're here and you don't take, partake, talk to your mom and dad. Ask them why, I could, why you couldn't and have them explain the gospel to you. Adult, teenager, if you're here and you don't partake, I'm begging you, let today be the day that you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Follow Him as your Lord and Savior. We're doing a baptism next week. We'd love to baptize you as well. So Christian, here goes. If you'll take the tab where the bread is, pull that back and pull that piece of bread out. This represents Jesus' body on whom God's wrath was poured out in fearful, holy judgment for us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for experiencing the wrath of God for my sin, for our sin. We acknowledge that it was for our unrighteousness that you paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might have hope and forgiveness. And Lord, as we partake today, we do so in acknowledgement of your glorious holy judgment that gives us the opportunity to experience forgiveness in life. In Christ's name. Not only in fear, not only in humility do we partake, but in celebration. For it was Jesus' blood that washed our sins away, folks. And every time we partake of this family meal, indeed every time we gather as followers of Christ, and sing the gospel, read the gospel, hear the gospel, we should celebrate. Because we're recipients of the good news that we don't have to be judged anymore. God has made it possible for us to have eternal life. And of all the people in the world that should be happy, should be joyful, we should be. Because we have forgiveness and we have Jesus. So we partake in celebration. Lord Jesus, thank you for your bloodshed that gives us life, that gives us forgiveness, that offers us hope and eternity. 
And may we, as we partake today, may we celebrate the forgiveness that we have in the glorious relationship you've offered by dying on the cross for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. I ask you to stand with me if you will. Folks, we've looked at a text of Scripture that is full of fear and celebration. We've seen the intervention of God so that people could celebrate and worship. We've also seen the judgment of God. If you're here today and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ, then you're on the path to receive God's judgment. I would beg of you, let no day go past today where you don't enter into a relationship with Christ. Christian, maybe you should move a little bit when we sing holy, holy, holy. Maybe. You know, it's not the, the best dance song, but, but it reminds us of God's holiness. Here's something I do want you to do. Smile. At the very least, our celebration can be a gratitude that shows up on our face at the glories of the God who would redeem us and forgive us. Can I get an amen? amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done. As we close with this invitation, affirming and testifying to your holiness, pray that you would hear our praise. Pray, Lord, for the one or the several that are unconverted here today, that have not yet trusted you to be Lord and Savior. Will you bring their heart to a place of contrition, confession, and salvation? That they may be able to sing in the affirmative that you are holy and testify that you are their forgiver and redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.